It's no secret. America is in the throes of the most significant public health crisis ever. Addiction and overdose impact millions of families. In 2017, more than 72,000 people died from an accidental drug overdose in the U.S., while more than 88,000 people die annually from alcohol-related causes. Those statistics, while harrowing, don't articulate what substance use looks like from person to person. As a society, we tend to look at substance use as cut and dry, a weakness or character flaw, when in reality, seeking pleasure is about as human as it gets. Avoiding pain is part of our daily cycle. This crisis is beginning to cause people to think about their behaviors and the way they treat others who use substances. So how does someone go from using drugs recreationally to building a tolerance or going through withdrawal? How can a high morph into an overdose? What about the family members who love someone struggling with addiction? What happens to them? Where do you turn when someone you love has died from a substance-related death? It's complicated. But with knowledge and support, hope exists. We are five women under 35 who have loved, lost, and learned more than we ever wanted to about substance use. Our goal is simple, to give a voice to people across the globe impacted by substance use and to let them know they are not alone. By sharing our stories and evidence-based research as our driving force, we hope to open minds and ultimately save lives. Join us, the ladies of Live for Lolly, me, Chelsea Laliberte, Courtney Gunkelman, Jess Weston, Stephanie Cyrus, and our producer, Danny Mastriani, as we use our heroine voices to get sincere, honest, emotional, and probably a bit controversial from time to time. Stigma ends here, but hope begins here. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Heroine Voices. I am Chelsea Laliberte. I am here with special, special guest, Mrs. Laura Fry, Director of Patient and Family Services for Live for Lolly, and my very good friend. And we're just going to dig into it. So tonight's discussion is we're going to be talking about first-person language and stigma reduction. Now, that sounds like a lot of stuff that we're probably going to have to explain, right? But what we're hoping is what everybody listening will leave here with is a lot of information about how the words we use and the thoughts we have contribute to someone's potentially feeling shameful or sad or silent about something they're struggling with. So let's meet Laura. Thank you for being here. Well, hi there. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting to be a part of this. Uh, So, what does the Director of Patient and Family Services do? So, basically, uh, what I do here for Live for Lally is anything that involves patients and families. That could be everything from peer-to-peer support groups, one-on-one talking to moms, dads, siblings, friends that are struggling with a loved one that has substance use disorder, making presentations for various organizations, other nonprofits, police departments, schools on the opioid crisis and substance use disorder as a whole. And just a lot of, I think one of the biggest parts of what I do and probably the part that I like the most is being there for other people that are struggling having come from a place of struggling myself personally and with my child. Wow. So all day long, what I'm hearing you say a little bit is that you're basically taking on other people's emotions and issues, and that's got to be quite taxing sometimes. Well, actually, it's perfect for someone that's an empath, Ah, like I am. 
And part of being a successful and a healthy empath is knowing how to take in people's stuff, but how to let it go too. So how, how to make people feel comfortable and safe talking to you, but also knowing how to not take that stuff home with you. So Laura, you sound so passionate about the work that you do for Live for Lolly. Can you give us a little bit more insight into your past experiences and what really led you to your position? Well, thank you so much for asking. I found Live for Lolly back when my son was missing. Uh, During his active IV heroin use, he disappeared for 10 months. And I needed to learn all I could about this phenomenon that I was in the middle of. And uh, Google is our friend, right? And that's how I found Chelsea and found Live for Lolly. So that's how I got here. But how I became an empath and, and caring about people as a whole, I think stems from very young childhood being sexually abused, incest within my family, going through a lot of physical and mental abuse. It can do one of many things. And for me, it, it turned me into an overly caring person instead of being bitter and hateful. But also what it did before I came to grips with that is it turned me into my own substance misuser. And I was very heavily into alcohol and all amphetamine products. And what I learned is that that's called adverse childhood events. And a lot of people with substance use disorder are trying to drown those out. And that's exactly what I was doing. So a lot of my my empath and intuitive nature comes from being abused, which actually at 58 years old, I refer to it as a blessing because it really molded and shaped me into the person that I'm happy to be now. Wow. That's amazing. It's You've been through so much and it's... Um, really shaped you into being someone who's so strong and somebody who's had such a large impact on so many people and their families and their journeys through recovery. So blessed to be able to do this work. Really, every day it's like, I really get to do this for work? And I come from my job right before this. I, I worked in an ER in nursing, and I would see substance use disorder. I would see people in end-stage alcoholism. I would see overdoses. And even though I didn't feel personally impacted by someone I loved, I had my own substance history, but that that's different than someone you love. But I always felt compassionate. I was uh, lovingly nicknamed the drunk whisperer. And when someone like that would come in, I was the one that was asked to go in. We can't live without Laura here at Live for Lolly. One of the things Mm -hmm. that it's been amazing to watch, whereas I have a clinical background, Laura comes in and she will literally spend days working with one person and her patience level and her ability to just relate to them and work with them and, and allow them to be where they're at 
and just validate it. It's really amazing to watch the process. And so what's been interesting too is I think a lot of people watch the show Intervention and think they have an idea of what an intervention is. And actually we don't really call what we do intervening, but oftentimes we're in that role. The way we do it though is through a completely different channel of of mechanisms and we we take more of a long-term approach and that's what certain people need because there's not a lot of people who can get out of an intervention like scenario like what they can with working with somebody like Laura because when you push somebody into a type of circumstance Sometimes that creates more problems. Sure, they may be in a treatment environment, but it doesn't mean they're going to stay. It doesn't mean that they're going to come out better than they went in. It means they may have more damage going in. So it's really about, for us, listening to people and making sure that we're honoring their truth and not pushing them into a place where they don't necessarily want to be. And Laura is the master (laughs) at that. You said earlier something that I actually am curious about, too. Can you define what an empath means to you? Absolutely. An empath is someone who can feel what someone else is feeling. Someone that's very good at reading body language and can tell before someone else does that they're feeling depressed or sad or something like that, can really identify with a person from an emotional and feeling place. To be on the receiving end of that, sometimes you end up like feeling literally what they're feeling and getting to that like anxiety state or a depressed state. It could be really thwarting of your day. Absolutely. You see somebody who's got those vibes that they're putting out there and they don't even mean to do it. They're just... And you have to, you know, when when you are an empath and and you want to work with those traits or those special powers. Uh, You have to learn cleansing techniques so that you don't keep it inside because it can make you sick. When someone you love or someone that you really like or someone that you work with is, is in a way that might be hurtful or harmful or sick, and you take that on trying to help them, and then you hold on to it, then, then you get sick too. But it, it can also be a curse when, when I'm in a room with a lot of people. That becomes, uh, can become overwhelming. It must be. Wow. Laura, awesome. you mentioned peer-to-peer support groups. For someone who may not be familiar with that, can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Absolutely. I am not a licensed clinical person. I am just a peer like like anyone else in the group. So I think that's the biggest difference. And it's a benefit because I am not any higher or lower than anyone else in the group. I'm just a peer that possibly has gone through exactly what they've gone through and can offer suggestions or guidance or just uh, a shoulder to lean on versus a licensed person or when you go to see a therapist, they are trained and licensed to do that, but they might not necessarily have gone through what you've gone through. Right. And the tricky thing about, as a clinician myself, the tricky thing about being in a clinical role and running a group that's a treatment group is that you have to have 
be constantly aware of your boundaries, your body language. I mean, there's some similar things that happen in both, but you're really there to help people in that group work towards their goals from a therapeutic sense versus a peer sense, which is more based on connecting, right? Uh Just connecting uh from a social, not giving advice necessarily, but just being there for each other. Right, exactly. Could you talk a little bit more about what these peer-to-peer groups look like? Well, here at Live for Lolly, we have a couple of different peer-to-peer support groups, one being Smart Recovery. And Smart Recovery is a nonprofit organization that's been around for 25 years, and it uses cognitive behavior therapy tools to teach people how to cope better with life on, on life's terms. And we are certified facilitators of these meetings, but all we do is facilitate them. The The meeting really belongs to the people that are here. And there's a lot of crosstalk, a lot of interaction. And most of the time, I just feel like a traffic director, <laughs> which is good, which is good, as you want the meeting to belong to them. One of the other meetings that we have is called Refuge Recovery, which is a Buddhist-based, similar to 12-step meeting. It uh, focuses on suffering and how suffering is something that we all go through and how to live with it and move on from it and learn from it. And not only substance use disorder, but life in general. And I know you also run our harm reduction programs here. Can you talk a little bit about that piece of the work that we do, and what does that have to do with recovery? Ah, harm reduction. So what is harm reduction? I'm sure a lot of listeners might be wondering what we mean by that. Uh, Anybody that got in their car and put a seatbelt on today is practicing harm reduction or brushes their teeth or gets a vaccination. That is all harm reduction. So what does harm reduction mean to us or to me? A harm reduction to me means keeping a heartbeat. However that happens, if that happens by ensuring that an IV drug user has new, clean, sterile needles, something to cook their drugs in, clean cotton, instead of getting water and a used syringe out of a puddle somewhere, then that's what I'm going to do. Because providing people with clean, sterile supplies does not induce IV drug use. I drive around with them in my vehicle every day, and I have never felt like becoming an IV drug user just because I have syringes on me all the time. There's a lot of myths about harm reduction that I think on a daily basis we debunk just simply by interacting with people who have substance use issues. You know, naloxone, everybody got on board with naloxone really quickly, but it it seemed quick, right? But it took years before Mm -hmm. people actually were like, yes, let's all reverse overdoses. But naloxone is one of the primary forms of harm reduction. And so, you know, we're keeping people alive, literally, we're keeping people alive by not inducing like a drug induced heart attack, or, you know, creating more abscesses or obtaining hepatitis C or HIV. Why do you think that's so controversial for some people? Well, I can tell you why I believe that is because seven years ago, I felt the same way. And I educated myself. So if I can educate myself, then anyone can. Uh, When my son was an IV drug user, I would 
tear through his room and throw these things out when I found them. But in doing research and looking towards my peers and my mentors, I've learned that having a syringe exchange, giving people the right supplies in cities where they've been doing this for quite a while, you can see a tremendous drop in HIV, hepatitis C, uh, ER-related visits due to IV drug use like abscesses or blood clots or something like that. And the biggest thing that it does is it opens up this connection to a person who feels like they are nothing. And here is someone pulling over their car because they recognize that they're panhandling and they're probably a drug user and saying, hey, you want some syringes? And chances are, and this has happened many times in a lot of the studies that I've read, those same people, it could be six weeks, it could be six years later, but they're going to know that you are not judging them, that all you want to do is love them and keep them safe. They'll come back to you when they want if they want recovery. Right. And, and recovery, I think, also looks differently to each person. I mean, somebody may be on the street not necessarily wanting housing or, you know, uh, a traditional, maybe conventional lifestyle like we would we would maybe exist in. But to them, they may be in recovery and that may be their recovery path. We work daily with people on making sure that that positive change is happening for them based on their own plan. But I think the thing that is the biggest thing for us that comes out of it is compassion. No judgment and promoting compassion towards them. You're not going to move somebody who doesn't want to be moved. And you're certainly not going to do that with hateful words and with judgment and with slamming doors and with yelling or calling them, you know, cretins to society. I just don't think that that's ever been effective. So, Laura, I think in thinking about how we approach harm reduction, it kind of makes me think, what are some of the myths about people with substance use disorders and their families that you think need to be dispelled? How much time do I have for this? <laughs> There's a lot of myths. Um, I think the, the biggest one is that these are bad people. These are not bad people. My son was and is not a bad person. I am and wasn't a bad mother. These are sick people. And they need love and compassion just like someone with cancer does. And if I could expound a little bit more on that, I am a cancer survivor. And when I was going through treatment, I spent a whole year not cooking, cleaning, or doing laundry because my church community, my neighborhood took over those things. I was sick and I needed care. When my son was sick, I got no casseroles. Nobody came and helped me with laundry. Nobody even came and took me out for lunch. Uh, so you have two diseases that are treated very differently. And substance use disorder is, is one of the only diseases I know of that we shame people for having. And these are not bad people. They're sick people trying to get better. Absolutely. So what, from where you sit and from all of your experience, what has this shame and stigma done to people? And, and when I'm, I say people, I mean literally millions of people who are struggling with varying issues and varying severities of substance use disorder, you know, what have we done to them? 
Well, I can speak personally being a person in long-term recovery myself. What happens when, when we feel this shame from the outside, we already don't like ourselves. In fact, we hate ourselves because why else would we be doing this to ourselves? And if we see this reflected back to us by society, by our families, by our loved ones, then we really must be hateful. It just validates it, it right? It's it like, says, okay, so I am right. no good. Yeah, I am no good. You're right. It keeps you sick. And how do you get better? Because, and, and I try to share this in peer support meetings, the first step has to be you love yourself. Because until you do that, if you're getting better for your mom, if you're getting better for your husband, if you're getting better for someone else, and you still are in that sick place on the inside, your core, chances are it, it might not work. Absolutely. It makes sense. It really does. And we totally underscore the amount of people who are actually impacted by this. I mean, I don't think we actually really know what the number is because it would require somebody to have the gusto to say it out loud. And so many times they're just sitting in their house drinking incessantly all day long, destroying their liver, destroying their body, because what's the point? I can't get myself out of this is maybe the thought that they might have. And what probably doesn't help is, first of all, the behaviors that that are associated with the illness, which we've deemed as a society as negative and bad, which, you know, some of them can be really destructive and harmful. And I mean, we certainly have a criminal justice system that deals with that. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's not good. Sometimes we miss the boat completely. But all of these factors and the D.A.R.E. program and certain types of, you know, verbalization you'll hear even from our president about what these people do and what drug dealers look like and what that is. It's like, I've never met somebody who struggled with a substance use disorder to elicit drugs that didn't have to deal in order mm -hmm. to be addicted to those drugs. Yet we've called them menaces to society and failures. And, right, exactly. So I wonder, um, knowing that, um, how do the words we use prevent us from helping people? How does me saying to somebody, oh, well, that's just what addicts do. How does that prevent us from helping people, in your opinion, in your experience? Well, just that sentence that you just used, addicts, that is affixing a label to a person, and that dehumanizes them and makes them a thing, not a person. Just like for example, no one would call me a cancer. I am in remission from cancer. Uh, we've gotten a little better with mental health where we're not calling people, people with schizophrenia, schizos. People with diabetes, we're no longer calling them diabetics because that's a label and people are so much more than whatever their label is. And labels, I'm sorry, belong on jars not people. Why are you sorry about that? I'm not sorry at all. <laughs> so, so one of the things that I know happens in the recovery community is I think a lot of people, a lot of the people in recovery that I work with, they refer to themselves as an addict because they, they identify with that and that helps them connect 
so that they don't forget, they focus on their steps or whatever their plan is, and then they're able to go about their life. What is the difference between that and somebody like, you know, a random person referring to somebody as an addict? Because the person themselves can self-identify that way, especially if they're in a meeting with with like-minded people who have been through the same thing. They are self-identifying. When we identify someone, regardless of what what it is we're talking about it, we are affixing that label to them. And that then diminishes them. And if you're talking in a group of people and you're using words like that, like, oh, that person's a junkie. Don't give them any money. Well, then the five people that you're with are going to start thinking, oh, oh, that's a junkie. And then the person who is sick hears that and what are they thinking? Yeah, you're right. That's all I am. We just fuel it. It just gets fueled and the cycle continues. I, I When you were talking about that, Laura, the first thing I thought was the N-word. Yeah. Like, we don't say the N-word. That's just a no-no. Especially, you know, I grew up in, you know, a, a very white, upper-middle-class Jewish suburban community outside of Chicago And you don't say the N-word. Like, that's just something that we are taught not to do. And it's not nice to do that. And it's frankly just mean and rude and wrong. Mm -hmm. But within the African-American community, using the N-word is common. But it's okay for them because they're self-identifying within their group. Uh, Same reason why we don't call people with developmental disabilities retards anymore. You know, 30 years ago we did, maybe even 20 years ago. Retards, mongoloids, we don't do that anymore. They're developmentally disabled or differently abled. What are some words and ways that we can talk about this for someone that maybe isn't familiar or that is just starting the conversation around recovery? And I think that's where we we talk about person-first language, and that can be confusing to people who are not... Uh, in the field. So really, very simply, person first. You put the person first. You say their name. You then put the disease or whatever else it is that you're talking about second. So Courtney is a person that has asthma. Chelsea is a person that is a therapist. Danny is a person who loves birds. She's not bird woman. (laughs) If she self-identifies, yes, we just can't put these labels on on people. Yeah, but and but what you just said about Danny is so important. Like, she's just a crazy bird lady. Like that comes with so many connotations about who you are and what Mm -hmm. you do, and and the context of who like the good things that you bring into this world are automatically like completely disbarred, right? What's interesting too is is how you even said that comes across negatively. Yeah. Right. So it's not so much sometimes as also the word, but it's the connotation that comes along with it tends to be negative. And even yeah. the way we say that our inflection changes. When you say crazy bird lady, you said it differently than your words before and after, because it's just natural to do that. So if we speak that way, others around us are going to start thinking that way, too. Do you know what happens when you say to a, a therapist, oh, she's a therapist? Do you know what happens to that whole room? They think that you're starting to psychoanalyze them. I, my point is that I think that this happens with 
almost everything. Like, I can't tell you how many times people are like, what am I thinking? What does my face tell you I'm thinking? I'm like, okay, stop. I'm like off the clock. <laughs> like, you're not paying me for this time. I am just a person, right? Like, so it happens in the most minute and like normalized way throughout the day. We don't even realize we're doing it. Uh, I heard a podcast that Ashley Graham was doing with Kim Kardashian. It's like reality TV star. Like when you think of a, re oh, they're just a reality. T like, what does that mean? They decided to make a living having somebody follow their life around with a camera. But people think about that as like a second or third cast of an actor or an entertainer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what does that mean to them? Maybe that discredits the value that they bring to something that millions and millions of people engage in every day. And enjoy. And the key word that you used, just a. Just a. Awful. Very, very awful. Yeah. So we've done this now with an entire populace of people. So if we know that people are really suffering and struggling with an illness that we as a society have said is now an illness. For years, it wasn't regarded as an illness, but the American Medical Association, American Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, everything I've ever been taught in my social work program and counseling has been, this is an illness, this is a disorder that needs to be treated. And there is treatment and there is recovery. There is a path, there is a plan around this. Yet we still stigmatize. So how do we reverse this? What do we have to do as a society or person to person, even just on a small scale to be able to change the way things are? Starting with the family, I think. And, and I often tell people this, you cannot take a one person out of a family of four and one person has substance use disorder and you send them off to treatment and get them all better and then they come right back into the, a family that doesn't know anything about the disease, doesn't know how to approach the person, doesn't know how to best support even if they truly want to. So the whole family has to be in treatment the whole family has to be in recovery and has to learn how to, how to respond and how to behave. And again, I'll, I'll go back to my cancer treatment. The whole family was brought into the doctor's office to talk about what my treatment looked like, how my body would react, how my psyche would react, what kind of support I was going to need. It was a family that was in cancer treatment. But substance use disorder... Families believe that they send their loved one off for 28 or 30 days and they come back and everything's fine. And for families, that's so critical. I mean, I think now we know that so many of the reasons why somebody struggles with substance use disorder has a lot to do with their environment, has a lot to do with the behaviors that occurred and the messages that they received or didn't receive from their family, the genes I mean, your genetic predisposition, so many factors go into this. It's, it seems like it's easier for people to say, you know what, this is his or her problem. This is not my problem. You fix it. This is your deal. You did this. And what happens when you do that is you lose an opportunity to really heal the entire family unit. But it happens so frequently. I can't tell you how many times I'm trying to assist somebody and they and the, the one underlying factor that's preventing somebody from being successful with their recovery plan 
is a parent or a loved one who just is really struggling to have a to be able to see where their place is in it or admit that they need to be a part of that process too. And there's a lot of factors that go into that. And I don't mean that in like a blaming way, but it does prevent progress. Mm-hmm. For yeah, certain. I was going to uh, mention that too. Not that we are blaming families, but like any other disease, if you don't learn about it, you don't know. You know, knowledge is power. So like any other disease, if, if your kid came down with diabetes, you would learn everything you needed to learn about it. Uh, if, you're, if your kid had autism, you would learn everything you needed to learn about how to best help your child or help your loved one and how best not to. And no blame. It's just you can't know what you don't know. Do you think a lot of that goes back to the stigma? And because of the stigma, then there's a lot of denial or um, the ability to actually process that this is happening within your family. Absolutely. And people don't want to talk about it because outsiders look down on us. And when many years ago, when I found out that my son was an IV heroin user, I started talking about it right off the bat, all over social media in the grocery stores, wherever it was that I was at, because I thought, if this happened to us, there's other people. And I cannot tell you how many people would come up to me when I'd be walking down the hall at work and say, you know, I've been going through this with my son for seven years. People don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Are you going to add to that, Court? Yeah, I think it goes back again to we talk about the myths and one of the myths is you know failing as a parent or failing as a family and because there's that stigma around it admitting to that sounds like you're admitting to failing exactly and we do feel like a failure when this first comes to light I went through everything from my pregnancy up until my son was 24 trying to figure out what I did wrong but that comes along with as a family learning and getting knowledge about the disorder that I was not to blame. But there were things that I could learn how to do differently that would support him best. Can you give an example of that? Absolutely. I started taking care of myself because if I'm sick, I can't be helpful to him. And I also approached him with kindness. And even today, because this is a relapsing and remitting disease, today we are good, tomorrow we might not be. And having open conversations about that and using my eye language, like, it scares me when you X, Y, Z. Or I'm feeling anxious about you going into this situation. Can we talk about how you would feel? I did not talk like that seven years ago. I was the the woman in a bathrobe and her hair in a towel that chased a dealer out of her driveway with an <laughs> aluminum bat. Was not who I am now. But that's what I mean. The whole family, anybody that's interacting with that person needs to learn about the disease. So speaking of that, though, if you're not a family member, if you're like a friend or, you know, you know somebody whose son is struggling or you have a coworker who lost their their loved one to addiction, like you don't have to necessarily be directly involved in that person's life. What would you say they can do to try and reduce stigma on their own? 
please don't shy away from this person. It, it really is very simple. If you have a friend whose child is struggling or a friend who lost a loved one, invite them out for lunch. And you don't have to say anything. You don't have to know what to say. What can I do? I'm sorry. Two words. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you're going through. Want to have lunch? That's, it's really very simple. We get caught up in this, oh, I might say the wrong thing. I don't know if they want to talk about that person. I don't know if I should mention. I don't know where they're at with grief. I don't know if they're going to cry, yell, sob, get mad at me. It's all way too much thinking. Two words. I'm sorry. What can I do? Especially when people are going through hardship, they need connection. Don't, I think it's like, don't let your own discomfort get in the way of you being a friend. Because if you were, if the tables were turned and you were in that position, you would not want to look like a social pariah and you would not want to lose your friends just because they were uncomfortable with what you were going through. No one's asking them to solve it all. No one's asking them to have the right answers. Sometimes people just want to sit and be heard and to have somebody listen to them and not have anybody necessarily respond. Mm -hmm. That's not always what that looks like. No, just someone to come sit in your space with you so that you're not isolated. So Laura, we've talked about what family members can do when they have a loved one with substance use disorder. But what I'm wondering is how somebody who may not be as directly affected, what they can do to make a difference in the way they speak to others about recovery or about the disorder. Well, that could be very simply as walking down a street downtown with friends and one of your friends looks over at the homeless person and says, dirty bum. All, all you have to say, and this is what I do, you know, we don't know what that person went through. Maybe we ought to be a little kinder. So even within your own, you know, group of friends, commenting that. Uh, today, I had a worker here who mentioned a couple of homeless people that hang out at the exit near our office. He did not know that one of them is the daughter of a very good friend of mine. And she's been homeless and an IV drug user for a few years now. You just never know. Right who that person is. And that's all I said to him was, you know, that's someone that I've known since she was young mm -hmm. and she doesn't want to be homeless and she doesn't want to be an IV drug user. She's ill. Right. And it's easy to make judgments without knowing the full story of somebody's experiences. Of course it is. And, and sometimes because of the human condition, I find myself, doing that, looking at, I don't know, someone who's dressed very gaudy and, you know, having a split judgment about that, or someone who just looks outside of what my norm is, and just always being cognizant of reminding yourself, I don't know what that person's path is. I don't know how they got to be where they're at. Uh, kindness and compassion first. Mm -hmm. Because if you put kindness and compassion first, it really doesn't matter. 
one of the other things that that reminds me of, an establishment in my neighborhood would, the owner of the store, always posted signs out in his front window about heroin users, very disparagingly. Junkies are losers, die. Really, really hurtful things. And everyone in our neighborhood, because I surround myself around people who are affected by this, would get very angry. And I just would drop in there. I left him a couple of brochures. And I said, if you ever want to talk about it, you know, I'm, I'm open to talk about it. Why do you feel this way? How you seem very angry to me. Mm-hmm. You know, is there anything I can do to help you? And it's taken about three years. Wow. But the sign when I went by last week, he's getting there. It says heroin kills. Stop it. Progress. You know? It is progress. Uh, So modeling the behavior that you want. It's like my favorite quote. Be the change you want to see. Just live it. Don't tell people what they should be doing. Just live it. When I talk about my son, I, I talk about my son who is in remission from heroin use disorder. I don't tell other people that they need to talk like I do, but you know, I hear people repeating things that I know that they've heard from me. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. You know, it's just be the change that you want to see. And I think the other thing, too, that I don't want people to do is to, like, judge themselves for having a judgment. Like... I think it's important to know that we're all human. We all judge. We do. Like if you, you, if you were not judging naturally in your head, you wouldn't be a human at all. Like it's just a fact, you know, but, but do you have to stay with that thought? Like, can we acknowledge like, oh, like if you're walking down the street, the girl coming towards me, she looks weird. I don't like her shirt. <laughs> can we reframe that to, okay, like that's just how she dresses and good for her. You know, can you just do that in the moment? and reframe it for yourself. But what you just described, Laura, with this man who owns this shop is clearly indicative of somebody who's maybe really sad and angry about something that happened to him, or maybe like many people I've met, especially older adults who keep hearing about the addiction and overdose crisis, and they're angry, and they don't know what they can do, because it seems like it's getting worse. And that builds up in people. It's like, it's like fatigue, like people are fatigued with constantly hearing about the destruction. So maybe a simple way, Steph, to like do that might be if you're watching the news or you're reading an article about another drug bust, you may not say something like, you know, I hope all those losers go down and or something negative. Maybe it's something like, I hope that whoever is struggling gets help. And, you know, just reframing what that sounds like to you, because it's not just a drug bust. Right. There are people selling those drugs potentially who aren't El Chapo, Mm -hmm. who are low-level users, who are struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. They may not have a, a, of course, everybody always has a choice, but their brain might not be allowing them to see reason. Mm -hmm. And and that's obviously a very controversial topic, but it's one that we hear about a lot. Or a bunch of people, or on the news, a bunch of people died in in one evening on the west side of Chicago. It was like... A few years ago, we had a, an outbreak where like 73 people OD'd and most of them survived. But I remember people saying, well, the geez, of the herd. Right. Uh, or, or Darwinism. Darwinism. Right. Like, so, like something very judgmental. It's like, that's someone's friend. Right. 
That's someone's child. child. Like you're talking about a life, a person's life. Right. It's, it matters. It's worth it. And so many of them are, like you said, users supplementing their habit. A, A dealer will, will give you so many bags. And if you sell this many, you can have five of your own. It's just like being a Tupperware dealer or having a Tupperware party. You sell X number of product, you get some of your own. But not to most people. Well, people need to think about it like that. Right. We have to realize that just because you don't think that it's appropriate doesn't mean that it's not happening. And it doesn't mean that all those people are bad. Laura, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. I'm going to see you tomorrow at work, but they won't, whoever's listening. So what messages do you want to leave before you go? Well, I think the moral of this story without labeling someone is don't be a person who acts like a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Not don't be a dick. Don't be a person who acts like a dick because we're working on language. Um, Kindness and compassion for all. Even the dicks. Even the dicks. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Be the change. Because they they weren't born a dick. They became a dick over time. Okay. Got it. Just wanted to clarify that. Absolutely. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, Once again, this is Chelsea, Courtney, Steph, Danny, and Laura Fry. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. If substance use in any way impacts you, you are not alone. Help and support are available. Live for Lolly is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, safety, and education for patients and families impacted by substance use disorders and other mental health conditions. For information or help, please visit us at liveforlolly.org or on any of our social media channels. Call 844 584 52 or email us at info at liveforlolly.org.